Greetings, fellow Dungeon Masters. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim. I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. Today, this is a campaign planning episode for the God's Eye campaign. So this is the campaign starring Kevin, Matt, and Sarah as Gutterbird, Chai Spice, and Thaddeus Ulysses Gamble, respectively. And what this episode is today, it's just me talking about things that have happened. So I'm going to do a recap of episodes one through seven, talk about some stuff that I liked, stuff that I didn't like, stuff that I planned for but that never happened. And then I'm also going to talk about stuff that I'm planning for the next parts of the campaign. So there will be potential, almost certainly, spoiler talk. So if you want to avoid spoilers, you know, go ahead and maybe... Circle back to this one, this episode later. Um, But if you are okay with spoilers and you're interested to hear my haphazard slapdash mediocre planning process, then, well, you've come to the right place. Also, what we might discuss uh, is what I'm hoping to get to is something that I expect to occur, but I don't know exactly when, if or when, would be the Feywild. Now, I anticipate that the party will make a sojourn into the Feywild at some point. I don't know when, I don't know for how long, but I really do have to prepare myself for that. I think it's going to be an eventuality. Like, if they don't go in themselves, uh, like, sooner than later, I do have a a story beat that might get them there, which I'm, I'm just sort of keeping in my back pocket. Uh, if things change drastically, then you know what? I may not force them to go into the Feywild, although I think it would be fun. So we'll save that for last. So again, just a quick, you know, spoiler warning up front. If anybody is averse to hearing things that I'm planning, uh, then you know what? Now now is your warning. Now is your chance to sort of uh, jump off and go enjoy another episode, maybe a classic episode of of, of Knights and Nerds. Okay. All right. Well, let's get started. I I think I've given a, a fairly generous warning. So if you're still here... Welcome. Let's talk about the God's Eye campaign so far. So just let's do a quick recap, shall we? Episode one, a very long episode. And one that was, uh, this was an episode I should have split into two parts. I really wanted, really, really, really wanted to end on the cliffhanger of the party getting back to Rinvale and seeing that it was destroyed and that snow had fallen uh, and that all these things had changed uh, I thought that would be you know, good for the audience too, although uh, I really could have split it up into two smaller episodes. Um, I had more encounters planned out once they got to the mine. I had some encounters with Kruthix. Uh, I think that's how it's, it's pronounced, like this sort of cave-dwelling, uh, tunneling insectoid monster that I've never used before that I kind of wanted to use. And then sort of end episode one when they reach the ritual and then episode two could be maybe a more elaborate encounter i think the encounter i made was pretty straightforward and uh i didn't really take my own advice um something that i really often have said in the past is you know every so often in the encounter you need to change the change the circumstances of the encounter like add a new element introduce a new threat so that it's not just you know, several people who are toe-to-toe and they're just attacking each other each round. So I didn't really accomplish that, although I did have uh, part of the focus being on the implement with the ritual. It was a sort of staff or a focus, if you will. So, I mean, it wasn't just sheer mindless combat. It was it was fine. I figured I could have done better. Um, how could I have done better, you ask? Well, I think maybe introducing an element of the beholder in that ritual, like a uh, maybe not even like an attack from an eye ray or something like that, but just just something that really gave off gives off like the vibe of an aberration. So you know, once it was damaged, maybe like gravity reverses, everybody like falls to the ceiling, and like maybe some people take d- damage from. Landing on stalactites, uh, chai and spider form would have been completely fine. But, uh, you know, just just some weirdness there. 
just really, really get weird with it. I mean, just having the gravity reverse doesn't even necessarily do anything, but it does give the players, like, if 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 the implement in the ritual being damaged is what then triggers gravity being reversed, for example, uh, it gives the players, like, some tactical uh, options because they could grab hold of, uh, of let's say, a, a stalactite that is now effectively on the floor for them, whereas before it was on the ceiling. They could grab hold of something, damage the ritual implement again, send everybody else crashing to the floor, and then, you know, they're they're up there sort of hanging on for dear life uh, while everybody else has fallen prone, which could have been fun. So, I mean, that, that really was just off the top of my head just now. So, uh, definitely could have been better. Um, episode two, uh, I... Not too much happened. They fought some undead. They explored the town. Totally, totally fine. Uh, This was more of like just... I wanted to have like an easier set of encounters and some exploration. They had a tough encounter that they didn't win in the first episode. And so I wanted this one to sort of... I wanted the pendulum to sort of go back the other way. Where they have some easier enemies that they can just kind of, you know slog through. Uh, maybe slog's not the right word. They could have some fun beating up some zombies, more or less, uh, and exploring the town, trying to piece together what happened. So I wanted I wanted to have some some nice, easier encounters uh, and set, like, the, the atmosphere is, is what I wanted. Episode three, there was a there was a fight with Elden White, the White, and some Whites. Now, I didn't really go out of my way and make stats for Elden, I gave I know that I gave him some limited spell casting, but something that I forgot was uh, that I had written down was that Elden, in his white form, had a piece of Starfall, and that gave him advantage on saving throws against uh, the effects of spells. And I forgot I forgot about that. You know, he may have been able to avoid the hold person. Uh, he could have gotten out of the hold person sooner or at all. Uh, that could have made for a tough encounter if he if they failed to hold him. And that's something that um, the difficulty level is something that I'm going to get back to. But uh, for now, uh, I know that he tried to cast blindness slash deafness on Chai while she was a tiger. Maybe I could have given him like a uh, a beefier spell. Something like Burning Hands that was cast at like second level maybe a second level spell slot for that uh i know this has been said before i think maybe matt colville um has alluded to it but like the first round or the first couple rounds uh, of combat like just really hitting them hard and then maybe pulling back a little bit so yeah some of the encounters that have happened i have not come out swinging i'm gonna try to correct that okay so episode three the group gets the Starfall and goes back to a different version of Rinvale. This is the Beholder resetting the dream. Uh, and something that I want to happen in the near future is for the dream to reset. I don't want it to go too much longer for the dream to reset again. In the episodes following episode three, uh, I introduced, reintroduced uh, Ven the Half-Elf, librarian, and his human family. Uh, now... Nothing really came of this, and I'm fine with that. But what I was trying to do was to create a dilemma. I was trying to create sort of a moral dilemma for the, like, giving the players a choice to side either with Ven and his family, who are clearly duplicitous, or to side with the Knights of the Web against them. Uh, the dilemma, of course being that the party needs to get into the sanctuary to get the starfall but to do that they have to deal with the knights um the knights being led by someone who is morally inflexible now i didn't know how they would approach this uh, they could conceivably have gotten into the sanctuary a number of ways but uh, i wanted to sort of introduce that possibility that they might work with another group whose interests aligned with their own but whose morals did not. And that's sort of the crux of the dilemma. In the end, with their interesting spider-chai deception gambit, 
uh, I could tell that they were going into the sanctuary one way or another. Like, when they had gone through the pass after that brief chat with um, Ven's extended family, which I did try to cut down. I think I maybe shaved five minutes off of that. I tried to keep it brief. It was a long chat, though, uh, between Thaddeus and that family. Uh, anyways, once they were through, I could tell that they were they were determined to go in. So uh, I felt like it would be very cumbersome to force them to embrace the dilemma at that point. Uh, it would be a bit too heavy-handed. So I decided at that moment, you know what? I'm going to bring the starfall down now. I sort of had planned it for like the following quote-unquote day, like in-game, um, just so that they could have a chance to go back and chat with Ven and his family again and then like make up their minds. But I could sort of tell that they were going. One way or another, they were going. Um, so I decided to have the Starfall arrive at that point. But I also had had this idea that I had written down prior to all of this, that there was somebody in the Knights of the Web who was not as virtuous as Rune, the leader. And so at that moment, bringing the Starfall down kind of made the, like, made the whole Venn dilemma obsolete. But it gave me this possibility of introducing another conflict for them to deal with. Uh, a conflict that directly involved the party because it presented another small group of NPCs that they are now in competition with. So uh, Dash and his ilk, who did not last too long. Like I said, I did not come out swinging. So, I mean, it, it was something maybe unexpected. They were forced to deal with this betrayal in the Knights of the Web. Otherwise, if they had just gone straight in, they would really have made enemies of Rune. And if I had sort of decided that Dash and or any of his friends got got past Rune, that, um, that they'd be going through the sanctuary uh, with danger in front of them and danger behind them, following them. Uh, at that point, they were into the sanctuary, and they fought some magically enhanced spiders, and I got some very nice suggestions on magic spiders from the Facebook Dungeon Master group, so thank you everyone for those. Uh, much appreciated. I wish I had the opportunity to use more of them, because there are some really creepy and interesting ones there, but didn't quite fit for a, like a group, uh, like for, for this particular encounter because the group knew that they were going there i think somebody had this really crazy idea of having this the spider essentially use webs like to make like silhouettes of people through the trees to to fool the players or something like that maybe i'm misremembering it but essentially more of a like an ambusher type thing so i used the uh trap door option there and i should have given the spider a bit more juice but the ones that traveled through via lightning bolt uh, those guys were pretty fun like I said, again, I don't think that, that encounter, like with the two lightning spiders or the big starfall spider, I don't think any of that was incredibly challenging. And it's not that I want to make every encounter life or death or even super difficult. It's just I want to have a few of them here and there to be a bit more challenging. I guess kind of in the back of my head, I thought, you know, this is a low magic campaign. The average opponent is not going to be as strong as them. You know, even in episode two, though, sorry, episode three, that encounter with Elden wasn't that tough. Uh, so, yeah, hindsight, definitely some encounter should have been more challenging. Um, but what this does give me is the chance to make some of the next villains that they're going to face uh, more of a surprise. And that will be something that I get to uh, shortly here is what uh, what do I want them to face? What do I want to have happen in the near future? Okay. So that's a quick recap. So now we're going to talk about the things I want to accomplish in the next, I don't know if you want to call it an arc, but maybe the next uh, dream sequence. Yeah, maybe we'll call it that. The things that I want to accomplish. Um, I know that the party is going to be heading for the next piece of Starfall. And there's a number of things that I want to set up and have happen. So they're going to this new area. So I'm going to introduce a new region and city 
which has to be distinct from the somewhat generic town of Rinvale. Now, if you listen to my conversation with Andrew Kolb, uh, who wrote the fantastic Neverland setting book, um, there was a point in our conversation where we were talking about the sperm principle, S-P-E-R-M, which stands for Social, Political, Economic, Religious, Military. Uh, So those are like the five components where you're going to have usually one of each of those things in a town. So social would be like a tavern, political would be like a, you know, town hall where town councillors meet or, you know, wherever the throne of power is. Economic, you know, what's the economic driver? Like what's the resource or resources that drives that town that supports the livelihood of all the people who live there? Religious are their temples. One temple, maybe just to one god they only support, or is there... Do they have a whole bunch for different, uh, you know, variety of deities? And then military, obviously. What's the military presence there? So, uh, I mean, if you haven't listened to that conversation, you should definitely do it because Andrew is much better at world building than I am. And uh, something that I took from that conversation here is to take out one of these aspects uh, to give your town a unique feeling. And I don't know if I took something out more that I I dialed up one of the <laughs> one of those so maybe I kind of went the opposite way so the the town in question is called uh, Stonegate the Starfall has come down in this really inhospitable mountain range which is immediately adjacent to the city and it's sort of within the jurisdiction of of this city and a lord so the party's actually be crossing into a new realm not super relevant, but they're crossing to this new realm. Uh, this particular lord is very fearful of magic's destructive capabilities, so he's essentially outlawed almost all use of magic. And this means that for the party going in, and this is something they're going to have to tell them so that they're aware of the consequences of their actions, that um, you can't just go casting spells willy-nilly. You can't do it. This lord has basically criminalized the use of magic, and the party's going to have to tread carefully. Uh, so I really like sort of amped up the military presence there, as there's the starfall, there's a whole bunch of people who want it, the military is preventing anyone from going to get it, uh, which includes our heroes. Something else that I want to have happen is more encounters with the main antagonists, this means uh, probably Elden. He's like the right hand to the right hand of the main villain, the Beholder. So Elden is Bryce's kind of lackey. So Elden, potentially Bryce, and the Eladrin, uh, who were also at the ritual, these sort of colorless Eladrin that they saw. Uh, I landed on the name Ghost Eladrin. I'm not super thrilled with that, but uh, I'm sticking with it for the time being because I'm I'm not super great at naming things. Um, so yeah, so I want to have some more encounters with them. I want, again, like I said before, I want these ones to hit a bit harder because the Ghost Ladrin, you know, they come from the Feywild like Chai does. And while the material plane, we're in a low magic setting here, the Ghost Ladrin will have some magical firepower at their fingertips. Uh, something else that I want to do, I want to engage uh, Kevin slash Gutterbird a little bit more, give him a few hints of of some of his backstory, you know, just sort of drop a few breadcrumbs and see what happens. So in one of the earlier campaign planning episodes, I, I think it was maybe the first solo one that I did, uh, I had mentioned that I had this idea of what to do with Kevin's backstory. So his character Gutterbird, as part of his plan, sorry, it's part of his pact, uh, has lost some memories. Um, now, while not committing to the specifics of how those memories were lost, in a general sense, I know that those were lost. Well, let me rephrase. I have a few options for how those were lost. Um, my main one is that he willfully gave up some memories to to forget about his his wife, that his patron tricked him into thinking that she was dead, 
and and he was able to convince Gutterbird to, you know, surrender your memories in term in return for some additional powers, something like that. So I know that I also wanted Gutterbird to have this connection to the Feywild, uh, kind of in this sort of inception way, like he and his wife stumbled there, stumbled into the Feywild a long time ago, um, and they stayed there for a long time, and had some kind of connection with these ghost Eladrin. Now, time passes differently in the Feywild, so I think, in actuality, Gutterbird is a lot older than, than Thaddeus. He spent, you know, several years in the Feywild, but maybe that was decades, um, depending on where exactly in the Feywild he was. Uh, several decades would have passed in the material plane, and then he stumbles out, you know, missing big parts of his memory uh, in the service of this of this patron, not quite knowing what happened. So I sort of want to drop some hints there. Kevin's very, he's a bit more of a passive player, so I don't want to force anything. Matt and Sarah sort of default into this, into the 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 function of sort of making the the big decisions, but you know, sort of wanting to to give Kevin the opportunity to maybe put his hand on the steering wheel a bit more firmly if he wants. Again, like I said, I don't want to force it because I know that this is a podcast, and ideally, like everybody would be contributing in a more or less equal way. But it's also a game. And it's more important that they're having fun in their own way. Um, I also want to have him barf up a demon. That's something that I want to have happen. Like that was, I think, the core of his character. Uh, like a concept that he was really excited about was that every so often his patron makes him vomit up a demon. His body is essentially this this gateway for, sorry, I should rephrase that, a devil. Because demons and devils are distinct things. So, um, yeah, he, he really wanted to have his uh, patron use his... <laughs> uh, I feel weird saying use his body like that, but I mean, that's more or less, that's more or less the pitch. Uh, so I want to have that happen. Um, and then also what I want to have happen is to reset the reality, start the next dream. Uh, and I want, I want them to begin to understand maybe some of the consequences of their actions from one dream to the next and trying to figure out why things are changing. So I want to give them, yeah, I want things to reset so that they can maybe get a bit of information on what's happening because I have to eventually get them from where they are now, totally clueless and lost, groping around in the dark for some, you know, answers. Uh, I have to get them from this all the way to Knowing that there is this thing that is sleeping that they have to find and kill. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that is what I'm going to want to accomplish. Um, and I think what I'm going to try to do, I know that I know how Stonegate is set up in terms of being very anti-magic. When they get there, here's my initial plan. When they get there. Um, I do want to have Eldon um, have a conversation with them, pretend like he doesn't know them, and maybe make them confused about, does he actually not know us, or is he just playing? Of course, Eldon's going to remember everything. He remembers the, the ritual. He remembers being a white. He remembers being killed both times. And he's going to, I think, sort of, I guess the term is blow up the party's spot uh you know they're they're wandering into this town trying to keep a low profile and he is really going to i think in one way or another whether it's overt or covert uh spread the word that hey this group of weirdos over here has two pieces count of one two of starfall on them and then all of a sudden they are the center of attention which is absolutely the last place that they want to be, which would really hamper their ability to somehow get up the mountain, uh, probably put them on the wrong side of a lot of uh, people there, and and uh, yeah, make definitely would make them a target. So that's my general plan. Now, I haven't had them fight the ghost Eladrin yet. Uh, so I guess I could talk like very briefly about the ghost Eladrin. Uh, I did do up a, uh, a stat block for them. 
I kind of want to give them, like, I don't want them to be just pure damage dealers. I do want them to have some options to deal damage. Uh, like, maybe I'll give one of them, like, Lightning Bolt or something fun like that. Like a level 3 spell, because the uh, party's level 4 at this point. So, and they'll have access to level 3 spells once they hit level 5, or at least, at least try will. Uh, so yeah, it would be it would be kind of a shock, I think, to to have a a spell being cast at them that's sort of over their pay grade. Uh, but I wanted to sort of give them um, more of a flavor of charm and mind control, which seems to be more in keeping with the Feywild. And also, you couple those abilities like Crown of Madness, Command, Fear, things like that. You couple that with uh, one or two tankier fighters who are supporting them and and then it becomes a real mess for the party um although i think i don't know off the top of my head chai might have advantage against charm effects i guess that's probably fey ancestry but you know what that's totally fine um i think it would be fun to try to charm her and for her to succeed because that's another rule that i've read somewhere is to attack the players where they're strong. Attack them at their strength so that they get a chance to use all their cool abilities. But the the Ghost of Ladrin seem to me, they, they feel like more of a of a cult that welcomes you in, it draws you in, it, it snags you, snares you, and, and once it has you, it it's very difficult to let go. So I want them to be more of like, a bit more insidious. And that way they might have a couple people that they've charmed here and there. I don't want to lean too heavily on giving them thralls, because that's that's more of like a mind flayer type of thing. But it would allow them to insinuate themselves into situations where they otherwise wouldn't be in, like if they can charm a lord or a noble, um, they might be able to get access to his vault of, of magical goodies that are kept safe. So... Uh, I mean, speaking of the Ghost of Ladrin and Fey Ancestry, I guess now is a good time to any to segue into talking about the Feywild. Now, like I said, I don't know exactly when this is going to come up. I don't know the amount of time that I put into planning this. It feels like a lot, but I mean, what is time anymore these days? I mean, the Feywild, there's so much there. There's so much that you could do with it. Um... What I don't want is to write an entire setting book on this, because I don't know how much time they're going to spend there. And I don't want to write an entire, like, hundreds of pages, or or even, I don't even want to necessarily write 10 pages on this setting. I want to keep it fairly easy and straightforward, because there's, I mean, the plot is that I'm dealing with here is pretty, I feel like I'm on a knife's edge balancing things all the time. So I don't want to add in a whole bunch of extra stuff. You know, I don't want to put a crazy amount of work on myself, and I don't want to make it seem overwhelming for the players. So, but what we can still do is introduce some fun elements, and by fun, I mean chaotic. Like, the Feywild is inherently magical, and I want it to feel, even though I haven't created an entire setting manual for it, I do want it to feel distinct. I do want them to feel like they are in this alien place. Not Chai, obviously, but, you know, for the mortals. Um, yeah, so there's not a whole lot uh, I th- in, in the Dungeon Master's Guide about the Feywild. I think there's probably things on the D- the DM's Guild that I could get. I don't want to use someone else's work, though, and, you know, not credit them for it. Kind of wanted to do my own exercise of trying my hand at doing a somewhat cursory version of it again i'm i'm sure that there's a resource book out there that i could use but i didn't want to have to read an entire book or dozens and dozens of pages to figure this out you know even if i did have like the permission of someone like hey i wrote this thing use this i I really don't know that i would want to do that still if it's going to be uh if i'm going to have to have like a 40 page reference uh document on hand every time that they want to take a side quest into the Feywild. So where to start? Uh, Now, I know that a good place to start is probably with Chai's backstory. She gave me uh, like a list of questions 
uh, sorry, I should say a list of answers to questions that I asked. And part of that included a, a, a very cursory reference to like nobility and like a ruling family. So I know that in the in the existing lore, there's like the Seelie and the Unseelie court. I don't really want to lean too heavily on that. Although the I think she's called the Queen of Air and Shadow. I think we'll sort of borrow her. I'll get back to that in a minute. So anyways, we have the Seelie and Unseelie courts are what's referenced in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I wanted to make it different, but not super complicated. Uh, I want to have the, I guess we'll have like the high courts and the low courts. Now the high courts, uh, essentially controlled by the ruling family, the Saffrons, which is the name that Sarah came up with. So you can thank her or blame her, whichever you feel like. So we've got high courts and low courts. And in terms of like what the Feywild looks like, the Dungeon Master's Guide says uh, it's virtually impossible to map the Feywild. Now, I don't know how that translates into travel, particularly if one party member is from the Feywild, like that's her home. So if it's not possible to map... You know, how do they know how to get from point A to point B? Uh, so I don't really know how thrilled I am at this at this idea. I'll say I, I kind of thought that it was difficult to keep track of things as an alternative. There's three regions, Winterlands, Summerlands, and the Autumnlands, I know. Very creative. Uh, each with their own house that acts as stewards of that realm. Um, and the stewards are chosen by the high court. Each region has like distinct environments, distinct creatures and magic. So you might find like, you know, different types of hags in the different regions, for example. In the Winterlands, you might find like a yeti. And maybe there's a lot of dryads in the Summerlands. So, you know. Um, and then I'm working on a, a table of sort of randomized magic, where if you cast a spell in, in different regions, depending on the type of spell it is, there may be augmentations or randomized occurrences. Uh, for example, like the Winterlands seem more harsh. So if you cast a damage dealing spell, there may be an additional effect. Well, actually, let me see. I'm just going to reach for my notebook here. Let's see if I can give you an example. So in the Summerlands, for example, if you cast a spell that heals or gives a boost or a buff to somebody, you might be able to then suddenly be able to cast Fairy Fire as a free action on a target that the caster chooses. Yeah, so I made jotted down this little table of um, how how likely one of these random occurrences is, it depends on the spell level. So if I cast, let's say, a fourth level spell in the Feywild, in the Summerlands, uh, you would then roll a d20, and on a one or a two, there's a random occurrence. Uh, a sixth level spell would be one, two, or three, and then seventh or above, which they'll never get to, one, two, three, or four, uh, a spell from level 1, 2, or 3, you'd have to just roll a natural 1 on the d20 to see if there's a random occurrence. And something like an example of the random occurrence would be vines grow around the caster, giving them plus 1 AC for the next minute before welting away. So a very small chance for a minor buff, but you know what? If it happens, that's just kind of a cool thing, right? And there's some randomized occurrences for harm spells as well. And then the Winterlands sort of have a different flavor. You know, it's it's harsher. It's less forgiving. Uh, so if you cast a help spell in the, hinter in the Winterlands and you get a randomized occurrence, uh, one of the things I wrote down is that, so let's say I cast Cure Wounds or let's say somebody casts Cure Wounds or whatever, that target could receive 2d4 temporary hit points. But the caster cannot speak for 1d3 minus 1 rounds, which makes casting spells with the verbal component impossible. 
during that time. So yeah. Um, and in terms of the travel component of it, like I said, I don't like the idea that it's not mapped. Uh, but I do like the idea that things move around a lot. Maybe not like tectonic plates or anything like that, but the group's going to have to have a navigator, which will almost certainly be Chai Spice. And a nature or survival check to successfully navigate from A to B uh, will determine whether or not there's a random occurrence. Now, it could be a random occurrence, which is just kind of like something that they find, maybe a neat landmark. It could be a random encounter that they have to fight their way through. Um, it could just be like a random NPC that they meet. I'm, I'm working on a list of, of occurrences still. I think I've got about 20, but I could always use more if you feel like giving me some suggestions. Um, and the longer the journey is, the greater the likelihood, or I should, I should say, the higher the difficulty check threshold uh, will be to uh, avoid any randomized occurrences. But again, some of them could be beneficial. Most of them aren't. You know, it's a dangerous place. As I said before, the Ghost of Ladrin are also from the Feywild. Uh, something that is referenced in some of the lore is, I think it's called like the Borderlands of the Feywild, which are very dangerous places that people tend not to go. So I, I kind of figured that the Ghost of Ladrin would be from there. It seems to be making perfect sense. Now, something that is also said about the Feywild is that it is a reflection of the material plane. So I already know that the Borderlands is going to be near the Fracture, or essentially at the Fracture, on the world map. Um, now this was where the Old King's Throne was, which was sort of devastated by this magical cataclysm. And uh, the Land of Kings is right around it. Nobody's really ever asked me about that. But that's like essentially a group of um, self-proclaimed kings with salvaged magic items who are sort of constantly fighting each other for for power so it's, it's kind of like a, a like a mad max style war zone where there's lots of different factions everybody's you know fighting all the time going into the the area called the fracture to to search for plunder search for old magic that they can try to find um very violent and dangerous place but that in the Feywild is where the Borderlands will be, and that is where the Ghost of Ladrin are from. Something here's something that I copied and pasted from. Oh, geez, it was about it was. Can't remember which page is from, but anyways, it, this is this is pre-written lore about the Unseelie Court. Uh, I'll try. I'll try to find attribution attribution for this. But I want you to pay special attention to something that really lends itself well to the existing uh, plot devices that I'm using, i.e. the Starfall. So, uh, the Unseelie Court is the opposite of the Seelie Court's laughter and merriment and is ruled by the Queen of Air and Darkness. This dark goddess used to be the sister of Queen Titania, or Titania, before finding a mystical black diamond that has corrupted her with its power. The Queen of Air and Darkness no longer has a physical manifestation, but rather a cloud of darkness hovers around her throne, issuing orders for death, assassinations, and torture. Okay, so when I was reading that, I was like, whoa, this black diamond could be like a very sinister, malevolent black piece of Starfall. And I think I have just adjusted the name of the Ghost Aladrin's... Um, Queen to the Queen of Shadows, which sounds equal parts cool and generic. So I'm fine with it. It doesn't have to sound... Not not every name can sound completely epic, but yeah, again, I'm not a thousand percent committed to that, so I don't know when it will come up. So I could change it between now and who knows when. I guess I wrote a couple paragraphs about the history. Okay. All right. Uh, the Queen of Shadows, Serial... It's a lot like Zeriel. Isn't Zeriel a, uh, an angel that became a devil in uh, Morden Canyons? Anyways, Zeriel is the sister of Queen Cilia Saffron. While most Aladrin can be aloof and mercurial, 
Serial was always pragmatic and never hesitated to use aggression and force. When the Aladrin began to see what the humans were capable of creating with God's eye, she became convinced that they must be brought under the control of the courts. Queen Cilia saw a war with humanity would likely draw out more enemies to stand against the Aladrin, but Serial forged ahead with plans against the human realms. A considerable faction of Aladrin followed her, and so Cilia was forced to take up arms against her own sister. During this war, Serial somehow attained a piece of God's eye. It was black as pitch, and while it gave her tremendous powers, it amplified her worst qualities. Her quest to bring humanity under control transformed into an insatiable thirst to exert control over those she saw as inferior, including other Aladdin that were not already loyal to her. Cilia prevailed over Serial after a hard-fought struggle, not willing to slay her family. She imprisoned Serial in the borderlands, in a place that would allow her to live a long life without harming her. But Cilia did not understand how completely Serial had become corrupted, her hate and insecurities becoming all-consuming. She also underestimated how much power Serial commanded. I think I ended with a thought to myself. Did she allow herself to be defeated? Deciding to play a long game instead of... I think my thoughts trailed off there. Anyways, so essentially, Serial's imprisoned, but like, not weak. I don't know exactly in terms of the time frame when Gutterbird came into this. Presumably after Serial had already been in prison, but who knows. Um, I mean, ideally, I would really like for them to free Serial, to redeem her, bring her back to her normal self, and then um, to, br- to force Gutterbird to make a, a choice to betray his patron, at which point he would no longer be Pact of the Fiend, but uh, offered new power with Serial who is grateful at being freed from the corrupting influence of the Starfall. She's she's not evil anymore, and she offers Gutterbird to be his patron, and he would transform into a uh, pact of the Archfey. Hmm? How does that sound? Anyways, so uh, with that brief history, I, I want, yeah, I, I think it addresses a few things. One, you know, why Why haven't the Aladrin sort of just steamrolled over the human realms? I mean, I think it's a couple of things. Probably apathy. Uh, humans are, are generally too busy fighting amongst themselves. I think if the humans were suddenly to unify completely. Oh, hang on. That's an interesting idea. Maybe, yeah, this idea. Okay, this idea just occurred to me just now. I was going to say. If the humans were unified under one leader and not bickering amongst themselves, they would be more of a threat. And so someone like Serial would probably be seen as more rational, being like, hey, these humans, they're all on the same page. And if they decide to come searching for a Fey crossing and storm us, like they outnumber us 10 to 1, probably. And it would be not, uh, we would not be assured to easily defend our our homeland of the Feywild against them. Currently, the humans are in multiple factions. Very and there's very little trust to go around. There's some tenuous alliances, but they were unified at one point under the old king Vilsan. Vilsan. Ah, what a crappy name I chose. Until that cataclysm I talked about. What if that was the Eladrin who kicked it off? Maybe they were afraid of the human's potential and were like, you know what? We have to do something about this. Okay, so I'm not going to commit to that, but I like that idea. I find it interesting. It could be an interesting reveal if Chai goes on sort of a a journey of self-discovery or like finding out some of the dirt about like the noble houses who seem to be very on the up and up, like very moral and everything like that. I had also mentioned one of the previous uh, episodes like what are they doing with all this magic weapons that they uh, and magical gear that they took from the humans in the disarmament from the last big war I don't know what they're doing with it I would assume maybe they've repurposed it maybe they're hanging on to it for rainy day like to use against the humans if they ever need to and uh, on the topic of fey crossings Paul had asked a question several questions to me 
uh, some time ago, and one of them was, what's to stop somebody from wandering into the Fade Crossing? Now, it's a very good question. I hadn't thought of it at the time. I've had a chance to put some thought into it, and I don't know if this is a very great answer, but here's the thing. I'm going to borrow, there's a sort of a lunar cycle in Andrew Kolb's Neverland book, and I'm going to borrow that graphic and the first time that the players decide that they want to try to get into the Feywild, they'll have to roll to see what phase of the moon they're in. On a full moon, the uh, the, the Fey crossing shows up. They can cross. Uh, there's a map that I will post uh, for this new region that the player is going into that has a Fey crossing in it. It's not easy to get to, and so I would think that not many people would know about it. One of the other things that came up was... Uh, What's to stop weird monsters from trundling out of the Feywild like a Fomorian just wandering into the mortal realm and uh, causing a bunch of, of trouble? That would be the type of thing that would really coalesce the human uh, interest in defending themselves very quickly. So it's in the Ladrin's interest to prevent that from happening. You know, if you have this area where monsters are coming out of every so often, uh, eventually somebody's going to want to do something about it. I had just written down that is the it is the purview of the high court to delegate, I don't know, toll booths? Not as, no, not toll booths, but uh, guards to make sure that, um, you know, the, the, the ins and outs are monitored. Now, it's not members of the high court that do it, but they would delegate that to lower courts. And the lower courts are lower because they're not as strong. So there's always the chance for error. I almost said human error, but that would be silly. There's always the chance for weakness and vice and betrayal. So stuff could get through. I'm not closing the door uh, entirely on that possibility, so to speak. Briefly on the power structure, how did the ruling family get to be the ruling family. Now, like I said, I've got these randomized tables that I want to use, which sort of gives this aspect of chaos and magical spontaneity. Something else that I want to wanted to include was like that the Eladrin are very tricky. If they had a national anthem, it would be Tricky by Run DMC. Uh, power is accrued with the innate magic in the Feywild. If you do someone a favor, they become beholden to you. Now, the uh, which podcast was it? Not another D&D podcast did an entire arc through the Feywild, and it was, it was a lot of fun. But like things like promises, if you make a promise, that has binding power in the Feywild. You can't... I, I don't know what the consequences are necessarily of breaking a promise, but it would be not good. Words have consequences. I had just actually a week or two ago, I had read uh, in, a, in one of the various D&D subreddits about like what an Eladrin might say to trick somebody else. Like, oh, could I borrow your ear? Or could you lend me your ear? Like, somebody, like can I talk to you for a sec? But I mean, that also, if you take it literally, it means that the Eladrin might physically take one of your ears or actually take your, your ability to hear it and now you're deaf in one ear. So that's the kind of weird stuff that I kind of wanted to build into this. But I figured for the power structure and to sort of build on the idea that words have consequences, doing favors for somebody, if somebody comes to you and asks you for help and you agree, uh, they become beholden to you. Now, the way that the Saffron family has become so powerful is because that they have maneuvered themselves in such a way that they... That they clandestinely disadvantage other families so that they are forced to ask for, for help. And in so doing, they become beholden to the Saffron family. So they would send like their agent provocateurs to maybe destroy or sabotage holdings of another family, like maybe some, some defenses of their Eladrin settlement. And it's like, okay, well, no, that now there are all these trolls that are hanging around, and we don't have the necessary, uh, we don't have the strength necessary to fend them off. We have to go and ask for help, and that is what helps 
keep the Saffron family afloat is that they have all these families that are beholden to them. Now, what does this look like, like uh, for the players if they ask for a favor? Like they might ask for equipment. Let's say if Thaddeus wants a better longsword. Sorry, greatsword. What am I saying? Maybe he wants a magical greatsword. He might get one. And as a result, he's beholden to whoever bestows him, uh, bestows it upon him. And as a result, he may be called upon to do something later that he doesn't want to do. And the consequence for him not following through on his end might be something connected to the nature of the favor in the first place. Like if he asked for a greatsword, maybe he, I don't know, like losing your proficiency bonus for a greatsword is the first thing that came to mind. That seems a little bit harsh. Okay, if he breaks his promise, maybe the result is that he has to make an athletics check, like the sword suddenly becomes heavy, two, three times as heavy as it normally is. And so he has to make an athletics check every time, like each turn, in order to not have disadvantage on his attack. And, you know, the the difficulty check starts very low. Each round gets a little bit higher. And so, you know, maybe if an encounter drags on, it becomes worse for him because it just keeps getting heavier and heavier. But then resets the next encounter. Something like that. I'm just spitballing. I hadn't really thought of any specific examples because this is a very um, nebulous kind of concept. I'm struggling with putting like finite limitations on it. So I, and and I don't want to, again, like I said before, I don't want to put too much work on my plate. Uh, if like this aspect of the Feywild may never come up for the players, they may understand it. They may learn about it in sort of a lore capacity, but they may never actually end up requesting a favor. So until I think that might happen, I'm just going to keep it sort of loosey goosey. Okay. Um, I think that is more or less it. I hope this has been interesting for anyone. Um, I didn't think that I'd be talking for this long. So if you've made it all the way to the end, thank you very much. And I'm really looking forward to um, the episodes to come. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Things are starting to get real crazy. And I also want to say, I know I've said this a couple times before. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Like we've been going now for three years. And uh, even though... At times, this feels like a lot of work. I truly, truly enjoy the process and being able to share the story and like seeing everyone else's excitement and even like comments that have nothing to do with the podcast, like people sharing their own ideas. Uh, Super cool. Okay, uh, we'll end it here. Thank you again for joining me. We'll talk again soon.